But that's what it is my duty to speak about tonight. Anyway, one of the um, one of the ways I find helpful to think about or to tune into what we want to call practice, awareness practice, making the shift from um, intensive retreat to daily life. And for those of you who've done lots of retreats and lots of daily life, hopefully what I have to say is really familiar. For some of you, maybe not so familiar. And even if it's familiar, I know I get caught in it. Which is that even though we're talking on the retreat about awareness doesn't care what the object is, that we can bring awareness to everything. Of course, we get lost, we don't. But when we leave retreat, and even just like now, today, you know, we forget. Things get busy. And then when we, we will talk about, in general, how do I keep my practice going? Do I sit every day? And what do I do? But what often happens, consciously or unconsciously, is that some view, some idea has formed in our mind, pretty much, it's going to happen to everybody, that what we think practice should be like, or mindfulness should be like, or how mindfulness should look in our daily life, or when you leave here, especially if it's your first retreat, you may find, you may not, but you may find that you're actually much more sensitive and quieted down than you have any idea. Speaking, you might have gotten that sense where it feels like, whoa, when you come back from a little conversation. And sometimes people find themselves thinking that if this practice is working, that means that somehow we carry with us the sense of calm and it should stay. Or you'll remember what it felt like to be mindful in the times when it was really spacious and the difficult stuff wasn't bothering us. We think that's how it's supposed to be if I'm practicing correctly. We forget about all the garbage stuff that happened. In fact, many people come back to retreat because they remember what it was like at the end. And then they're sitting the first two days and they say, it's really common, I forgot about this stuff. I forgot what it was like at the beginning, the hindrances and the pain and the aversion. is like as if that's not part of it. And so, also, the, the emphasis, which we have not been emphasizing, but so much there's an emphasis on the on concentration as a more focused quality of attention. So it's, it's often the case that we leave a retreater in our life, when we think of mindfulness, we tend to think of it in the calm, focused kind of practice. And so if we say, I need to be mindful while I'm doing the dishes, I need to be mindful while I'm on the computer, it's impossible because we're trying to be really specific or really precise, you know, really kind of narrow. And that's one way of mindfulness. But as we've been saying, awareness, as, as we've been saying in the instructions, can have many flavors. And so I just, to start the talk, I just want to share a little bit about the way one of my teachers, my Burmese teacher, Tejaniya, talks about awareness. Because he, although he's a Burmese Saito, teacher that means, did most of his practice in his lay life with a family running a little market stall that his father owned. And so when he talks about cultivating awareness, no matter what you're doing in your life, he's... he's he knows what he's talking about because he's done it. And so the one, the thing I have to say that I've learned that's helped me so much just in these last few years of bringing this sense of really continuity of awareness. I don't mean every second. We don't mean that by continuity. I mean that's a nice idea. But the willingness, the remembering that no matter what's happening, Awareness can be here. We just have to remember. So he's helped me so much. And first is by tuning into how simple and accessible and spacious awareness can be. So you remember, I think Guy reminded you the other night, when I said the first night, just can you feel your hands? And you all said yes. How hard is that? Not to, right? That quality of awareness is all we're talking about to start with. 
That's all we're talking about. No one can really tell themselves, I can't do it. You know, you can't really get so caught up in I'm not concentrated enough, too many thoughts are coming. People will say that to him, too many thoughts. They say, oh, did you know there were thoughts? Yeah, okay, that's awareness. Basically, quit moaning and whining. I mean, he doesn't say that. But if you know what's happening, that's awareness, that level of awareness. That's where we start. He said, for example, and he has, he has towards the end of his, when he does a retreat, he has periods where people practice talking, not, not because the retreat's going to end, but as part of the retreat. And then in the groups, the interview groups, they'll have people say, how was that for you? And mostly we get caught in trying to be too focused because that's what we've learned. And people would say, and these are people who've been practicing a long time, well, we'd start, I'd start talking, I'd be aware of listening, but then I'd, you know, I'd kind of lose track because I'd be feeling the sensations and I couldn't follow. There's too much going on at once. I can't follow what they're saying and the sensations in my body and it's too much. And he would say, okay, can you just know you're talking? Yeah, I can do that. Can you know you're listening? Yeah, I can do that. Can we remember to do it is the trick. But when we think, oh, just know you're talking, that level... And recognizing the difference, and this is key, for yourself between when there's awareness and when there's not. So when you're talking to someone, you're blabbing away, and like like I'll say when I'm in an interview with someone, I'm blabbing away, or you're blabbing away, and I'm trying to suddenly I just go, oh yeah, right, hearing. I don't even say that. There's just a shift, right? Awareness is here. Then it's gone. Then it's here. Notice for yourself the difference. Is it different? Because the only way, the most key, essential thing to, I mean, this is obvious, but it can't be emphasized too much. The, the, the thing that we have to tune into that's going to support us to continue to cultivate a practice, a whole path of awakening, beginning with awareness as kind of our key, is that it has to, it has to matter to you. Not as a good idea, not as a should, I should be aware, and it's a good thing to do, and then I can cultivate compassion, and maybe I'll be a better person. And all of that's true, but when it's a should or a thought, it's the beginning, but it doesn't, it doesn't hold, you know? Because we forget, well, I try to be, but I can't, and I'm not, I don't feel any better, and there's as much greed as ever, so, you know, the heck with it. I'll wait till my next retreat. <laughs> right, I mean, we've all spent many years doing that. I advise you not to do that. Don't wait. But if it's not a high bar of awareness, if it's just noticing, you're doing the dishes and suddenly, oh yeah, aware of doing the dishes. You don't have to be precise. I can't feel the precise feeling of the water on my fingers. And Never mind. Knowing I'm doing the dishes. Appreciating that sense of awareness. It's a flavor. It's a feeling. Don't look hard for it. It's not like an object you can look at, this guy said this morning. It's not an object, but just that sense of awareness. Notice when it's there. Notice when it's not, which you'll only notice it's not because you wake up and remember it's not. Without any judgment or goal, and as he says, it's really true. When you start to appreciate for yourself that you, in a way, prefer how it is for you when you're aware than when you're not, and you really get clear about that with yourself, that makes all the difference because that's going to be what our motivation is. Then we go to retreats, we practice every day, we do whatever, you know, we work with with sila, with conscious conduct, with non-harming behavior. We do all the different things we do and we'll all have different paths. You know, we talk about things to do. But the, the heart is first knowing the simplicity of awareness. It's available to any of you any moment you remember. And then really let yourself feel into, do I appreciate it? You know, is it, is it important to me? And pretty much, of course, I have an opinion what you'll find. But, and, and it takes all of our practice to help us continue to find that. But that, I really think, is so, it's really the main thing. It's really the main thing. And then once we start to... Um, just start to trust, to just touch the simple, simple quality of awareness over and over and over, just as we've been doing here, but it won't be so refined. It'll be more, more general a lot of the time. It's, it by itself 
not from your willpower, but just by the frequency of remembering, it, the awareness, just like on retreat, starts to get a bit of a more momentum in daily life too. So you can be in the middle of a meeting, you know, and all this intense stuff's going on, and suddenly I'll just kind of feel the clenching in my gut, I'm awareness. I don't have to say, oh, I'm aware of clenching in my gut, tightness, tightness, tightness. There's no time to do that. But you don't have to. The awareness just starts popping in. And as it can be in the middle of, oh, all caught up, feels like this. Confused, I don't know what the heck's going on. Awareness of not knowing what the heck's going on. And that's what's so beautiful about it. It's not with any kind of judgment or preference that I'll be aware if good stuff is happening. You know, mostly, often, well, not mostly, but often, many people I've talked to over the years, and myself included, who have been trying to cultivate a, some kind of steady sitting practice, for example, in their daily life, and find that one of the big things that, that leads to the abandoning of a daily sitting practice is the sense of what happens in the sitting isn't good enough or clear enough. And so you find we're sitting for experience. We say, you know, all these things come in my mind to do. Why don't I just get up and do them? Because I'm getting nowhere in the sitting, right? But the sitting isn't to get somewhere. It's just to remind ourselves what awareness is like. So that maybe when we do get up at the end of the sitting, awareness will be more easily remembered. It starts to remember itself in a way when we're not putting these big demands on either how precise and clear the awareness needs to be or how clear our experience needs to be. I can't tell you. Well, I can tell you. I don't know if I can communicate it. What an amazing relief it's been not to try to be dharmic, not to try to uh, get rid of greed and be generous, I know I was talking about how wonderful generosity is. That's true. But that's different from trying to get rid of greed and be generous, trying to stop having aversion and be compassionate. You know, it's a setup. It's a total setup. I used to spend, you know, thinking I should be the bodhisattva of the ages, and every time aversion came up, once a year aversion would come up. (laughs) And then think, you know, this judgment, and then you don't want to pay attention because we have this ingrained uh, habit of pulling away from the unpleasant, right? And so then the whole thing goes down the tubes. We say, well, I'll wait till the next retreat. I can't do it now. It's such a relief to cultivate this quality of interest, not to be better, because the wisdom will come by itself, but the interest in how is the mind working right now? What's going on? When I'm filled with greed, rather than going into denial, aware, oh, greed is like this. Like I was saying in my talk the other night, maybe I act on it, maybe I don't. Either way, we're fascinated to watch how it functions. What's the effect? How does the mind work? That's one, that's strengthening the awareness. It's making the tendency to be for awareness to pop in stronger. No matter what's happening, we can be aware And two, with the steadiness of awareness, even watching greed or aversion play out, we keep being aware. And this is what I was saying, what I love about the freedom of heart and mind comes from recognizing things as they are. You keep being aware. Pretty soon, it's pretty clear that acting from aversion isn't really making me or anybody else happy. And that's different from a judgment, I shouldn't be aversive. Do you get the difference? It's just like the wisdom comes by itself. So Station is always saying, just take care of your awareness. Take care of your awareness. Just in this moment. No, just take care of your awareness. So that's the first thing I want to just offer or encourage you today, tomorrow, as you leave here. Take care of your awareness. Keep exploring it. Just see how it is for you. Can you connect with it? Is it something... And give it time that you trust enough that you notice it, that you trust it, that it matters to you. That you you see a difference in your life, in how you feel and how things are, how you function, the choices you make when you're aware and when you're not.
Because that's the only place it starts from. No one can do it for us. No one. The Buddha couldn't do it for anyone. We have to want to cultivate a life like this for ourselves. So that's the first piece. And um, going along in the same direction. I might be jumping around a little bit because I'm like just... This is kind of two or three different kinds of talks we would give in one, so I'm, I'm not going to go into the depth I would want to with any of it. Or else we'll be here till late. And I know you don't want that. So one of the ways in the, in the texts, especially in the commentaries, that this broader sense of mindfulness is spoken of, that's just a slightly different way, a little more classical way than Tejaniya talks about it, when we talk about, we've talked about mindfulness wisdom. We've said that a few times, satipanya, awareness with wisdom together. They're not exactly the same. But as I was just talking about, the steadiness of awareness, the wisdom, the clear seeing comes. You're like, oh, there's a sense of understanding. Oh, that's what, how that works. One of the ways that this wisdom is also spoken about, especially in the commentaries, is called sampajanya. So the two are put together often, sati, sampajanya. Sati means mindfulness, awareness. Sampajanya is often translated as clear comprehension. And the way I just, the two aspects, they kind of go together that I want to speak about particularly tonight, um, is clear comprehension is, of course, since it's coming from classic texts, it's very um, orderly (laughs) way of talking about it. But it's a, it's a way of saying that mindfulness, again, isn't just narrow, but including specifically the broader context in which things are happening and the motivation, the purpose for which we do things. So not just the kind of a blind, moment-to-moment mindfulness, but seeing the appropriateness, the suitability, the context, the whole situation, rather than just our own little situation. It's a natural broadening of the awareness And then tuning into, and I'll talk mostly about this, I think, uh, the the factor in our mind and in our experience of intention, what the motivation that gives rise to speech and action and even thoughts. This is such a key aspect, driving our lives and awareness, mindfulness of intention is a huge area for uh, the cultivation of wisdom and a huge area for the natural uh, shifting of our suffering habits of mind, of confusion, of uh, greed, of aversion or hatred or fear to wisdom, to uh, greed naturally transforms in the light of clear seeing, not immediately, but moment to moment. Greed naturally transforms to renunciation, which is just uh, a dropping away of the, the clinging, the attachment, and then to generosity. Ill will naturally transforms in the light of awareness, wisdom, to friendliness, to metta, and cruelty. We may not think we're cruel, but notice some of the thoughts that come up towards yourself sometimes. Cruelty naturally transforms through awareness, through wisdom, and this is moment to moment, not, not forever, to compassion. So it's not like, oh, you see clearly, cruelty never comes up in your mind, only compassion. We get so kind of you know, black and white, all this, all that, perfectionistic, forget about it. There's nothing perfect. perfect. But tuning into intention, I want to talk about it because it's such a powerful practice of awakening in our lives. Yeah, so this sampajanya, this, this um, clear comprehension is talked about. Noticing the motivation and seeing it within the bigger context of what's appropriate, what's suitable. Now, for those of you... Okay, motivation in English has a kind of a broad sense, you know. I'm, my motivation to come to the retreat was to, you know, feel better. My motivation in having my job is to take care of my family, kind of broad strokes. And in a broader way, that's one use of motivation or aspiration. But there's another way, obviously being from Buddhist psychology, much more specific. 
And at times we can notice it where the there's a mental factor called chetana. It's a little, and you won't see this mostly, but I just want to describe how it works. It's a little oomph kind of in the mind. It's a mental factor that leads to speech and action. They say even thought, but for our daily life, let's stick with speech and action. We don't, the body doesn't move without that there's an intention. And just as with mindfulness, and we're talking about awareness, that it comes together with whatever factors are in the chitta, the psyche at that point. So if you're paying attention to something and there's a huge amount of aversion in your mind and you don't recognize it, you kind of see that object through an aversive screen. You know, someone was just saying that today in an interview. So even as beautiful as it is, I notice when the mind's aversive, I look out and go, oh, you know, another tree. Oh, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And you knew you thought it was beautiful earlier. The perception gets colored. This isn't personal. This is just how it works. It's great to be aware of it, to watch it without judgment, without taking it personally. So, so with intention. The intention, the seed that gives rise to the action is fueled or colored by whatever particular mental states, mental qualities happen to be arising with it. And this is so key because in terms of how the Buddha described action, and what's wholesome action and unwholesome action, what's skillful and unskillful, whatever words you want to use, what is not about the result, which is how we pretty much judge stuff, isn't it? We do stuff for a particular result. If I do it and the thing I wanted to happen happens, I think, oh, that was a good action. But that's the thing that's out of our control. He says the seed of karma, really. Karma just means action. The seed of wholesomeness or unwholesomeness in terms of what's helping to purify our hearts and minds or what's feeding, like the guy's story last night, what's feeding the demon wolf and what's feeding the wholesomeness isn't what happens with the action. It's the quality that is motivating the action. And so learning to just explore, to pay attention to motivation is really huge. And we can't tell, we can hardly tell our own half the time, and it can be complex, but we certainly can't tell from another person watching their action what their motivation is, although that doesn't stop us from imputing it, and you know, at all. But, like, take, take an example. I always use this example because I, I just, I don't know what comes to mind. If you want to tell someone you know well, they do something that's really not for their own good and it bugs other people, right? And you want to... Really, when you're not around them and you're not triggered, you want to tell them this out of kindness. You know, really like, let me give you some helpful feedback. Already, you know, when someone comes up to you and says, can I give you some feedback? <laughs> you know, <laughs> how many ways do we hear that? <laughs> how many ways can it be meant? And so the actual same seeming action could come really at a time from metta, I really want to tell you this out of caring, and you're really feeling that at the time. It can, or we can be telling ourselves, I want to do it out of metta, but really you're annoyed as heck at them. And you say, let me tell you this for your own good. You know? And of course you can feel it under there, right? Or you come in and you think you wanted to say it, but you're just kind of not paying much attention and you're not even noticing the situation the person's in. So you come in all caught up and I'm going to give you this good feedback and you don't notice they've just staggered in the house from a horrible day at work and they're completely stressed out and the kids are screaming and they're feeling a little sick and you go, let me, with all the love and kindness in my heart, give you this feedback, you know, and you wonder why they can't hear it. Same action, completely different intentions. Or you could consciously be wanting to hurt them. All all different things. And so you can maybe get a sense of how the seed of what's wholesome, the seed of what's unwholesome, is in what our intentions, what motivates the action for us. And so to begin to explore this, just to even note, begin to tune in, is a wonderful um, practice. Again, as as I was talking about with Utejaniya, with the sense of awareness, not with judgment, you know, it's like we just want to see what's happening. We don't, if we get into, well, I don't want to see when it's an ugly intention. We do that, right? And then we just shut it down. That doesn't work. <laughs> we have to be willing to see the whole show with this kind of awareness, and then we really learn. And when 
Oh, Sally, I think Sally said in her talk about mindfulness. When, when there's that mindfulness, it's just noticing sort of what's giving rise to an action and do it with little things. It can be a moment of choice. So, like I was, I think I said this in the last retreat, it popped in my mind. I started to notice a habit of mine. Sometimes when I get in the car and I'm driving, where I live in Massachusetts, it's like an hour drive to anywhere, sort of like here. Not, this is way out there, not as much like here. But I get in the car, and if my mind just gets a little restless, a little scattered, I reach out to turn on the radio. Just do it. And if I notice that, just notice it. Not having the idea I should not turn on the radio because that's putting you know, kind of a negativity on but more just watching. What am I doing? As I watch it, I'm really clear. The, my mind gets restless, a little bit bored. I can feel it. And so the hand goes out and turns on the radio. And then if I notice that, sometimes as I tune in, I go, actually, it's much more peaceful without it. And I just turn it off. That's the wisdom coming in. That's not you shouldn't listen. Because if I say I shouldn't listen and I turn it off, two seconds later, the same thing happens again, right? But when I tune it, oh, yeah, it's much peaceful without it. Or if I go ahead and turn it on, keep watching. I notice I turn it on. Well, there's never anything I want to listen to. So I turn it on. I don't like this. And I start punching the buttons, you know. Well, this, I give 10 seconds, 10 seconds. Then I put it on the one that jumps from station to station, you know. So it's jumping from station to station. It's going for 10 seconds. Do I want to listen? Boop. No, I don't want to listen. Boop. I'm driving off the road, meanwhile. And by the end, I'm getting more and more restless and agitated. And I go, why the heck am I doing this? If you can just watch this stuff, we learn so much. We learn so much about the habits of the mind. You know, It's a kind of a restlessness that leads to wanting some kind of input, just some kind of input. But does the input make me happy? No. It's feeding the restlessness. It's feeding the agitation. So just to keep watching, we learn so much. And then there's that moment of choice where I go, ah, turn it off, and there's peace. That doesn't mean the whole thing doesn't start again in five minutes. But when we're, we're taking our stance in the awareness, like Tejaniya says, awareness is your home, stay where you belong. When you take the stance in awareness, it's fascinating just to watch that whole process. I used to, many, many years ago, in the first years of my practice, I would always have these... Um, ideas, as I said, of being dharmic, how I should be. And so listening to crap on the radio wasn't it, you know. So I would be listening to crap on the radio and judging myself the whole time. So you're doing it without awareness and adding negativity and aversion to the mix. Bring in awareness. At that point, because we so much don't really like being with negative states, the awareness, we don't really want to bring in awareness at that point. Oh, no, this is going to go away. So this is where the structure of our practice, and the wisdom of understanding, for example, the Four Noble Truths, or understanding impermanence, understanding unsatisfactoriness comes in. Because that, it's borrowed wisdom, it's heard wisdom, but it gives us a sense of, yeah, okay, this is uncomfortable. Let's get interested in seeing what's going on. What's feeding the confusion here? What's feeding the agitation? Where's the peace? I mean, I wouldn't be saying all of that, really, because I'm just kind of gently watching what's happening. But there's that quality of trust in the awareness and wanting to really see... Because I I really trust the stuff I've read, the stuff I've heard, the stuff I've practiced of the Buddha's way of describing. I mean, just totally not makes sense. It's real in my experience, everything we've said. And so when I feel myself getting more and more agitated, I know for an absolute fact in my experience, that somewhere in, in the mind is being strengthened some kind of greed or some kind of aversion or fear or some kind of delusion. Well, delusion goes always with greed or aversion, or just delusion. I know that's there. And my interest is, let's see it. Let's see what's going on. Let's see how it's getting seduced. Let's understand how it's working. Back to Tejaniya. He has a mind like that. He's just was fascinated by what was going on in his mind, no matter what. And he said he'd be, you know, he'd go out with his friends. He said they didn't know what he was doing. He said, but I'm always watching my mind. What's going on in the mind? He calls it secret mission. He said, I'm going with my friends to a bar, or whatever they call a bar in Burma, or a kickboxing match or something, and I'm just watching my mind, you know. He was telling a story, and this is great for watching 
our intentions. Where he said he used to love going to boxing matches. And he hadn't gone for a long time, so finally he said, I'm going to go. And his kind of mind kind of said, oh, no, you should. He said, no, I'm going to go. But he's watching his mind. So he watched how much trouble it was to take the time off from his work, close down the stall, get on a, a public bus in Burma, which is like hot and crowded and long because he lived in Yangon to get there. So, you know, you're totally worn out when you get there. Then he goes in and all these people are screaming and yelling, you know, at a big sports event. And it's like really loud and unpleasant. And then the boxes start and these guys are like pounding each other and he's right in the front row. And, he's, what? and then he goes, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> That's exactly what he said. <laughs> and he said, okay, that was the last one he went to. And, you know, he's like, in a way, he enjoyed that whole thing because the enjoyment is the wisdom. The enjoyment is, wow, look at how this is working. Look at what we're doing when we're not paying attention. So beginning to <laughs> get interested in watching our minds, watching as best as we can. We're about to do something. The Buddha said to his son Rahula, who uh, when he was seven years old, his son became a monk. And as it said, became a completely enlightened, I think also at seven. So the Buddha did have some kind of, it was nice having a Buddha around, <laughs> let's put it that way. But there's a very well-known uh, discourse where he's talking to Rahula about noticing, about really um, exploring your motivation for any action. And it, the sutta starts by saying, and this is important, I'll say why, he says to Rahula, what is a mirror for? And Rahula says, a mirror is to reflect, just to reflect. And the Buddha says, yes, just so, Rahula. So just like a mirror, you should reflect on your actions. Any action before you do it, of body, speech, or mind. You need to refl- and, I, and the reflection, the reason I want to bring that in is the mirror reflects. It doesn't judge, does it? The mirror doesn't pop up and say, God, you look like heck today. What are you doing? You know, The mirror reflects just as it is. That pure awareness is just like that. So you're reflecting, not with judgment, not to say I'm good or bad. But re- so he says you reflect on your action before you're doing it, if you know, to see is this going to lead to harm or pain for me or others? If so, refrain from it. If you don't notice before the action and you notice in the middle of the action, reflect. And this is like how I would put it in my language is, check out what's my motivation. Because we don't know the result of the action, but we can tune in and say, oh, you know, a lot of aversion in this. Maybe I could wait and do it when the mind's clearer. In the middle, reflect. Or if you check it and go, as far as I can tell, you know, this seems to be coming from a clear mind. Maybe it's coming from compassion. Maybe it's coming from just simple, it's time to do this, you know, just the obvious thing to do. Maybe it's coming from metta. Maybe it's coming from joy. Maybe it's coming from a sense of um, duty, but without negativity, and you do it. If you don't know until after it's over, still, tune in, reflect, check what was the motivation. And after it's over, you have actually more of a sense if it brought some kind of harm to yourself or others. And if that's the case, he does not say, Take out the whip. Say how horrible you are. Guilt, guilt, guilt. Guilt actually isn't something he ever talks about. He says, and this is another student, if you see that actions you have done in the past have been unwholesome, have led to your own suffering or the suffering of others, when you see that, then you say to yourself, okay, now I won't, I won't do that anymore. He doesn't say, you go, oh, my God, I'm so horrible. No, sit here and yeah, rip yourself. You know, you, but you feel the remorse. You go, oh, that lying, that wasn't helpful. I'm really not going to lie anymore. You know? So this quality of looking at what's our motivation, just like a mirror, just to see, is really incredibly powerful. And from this, it's where we start to see for ourselves when we talk about what's a wholesome or skillful What's unwholesome, unskillful? Sure, there's a list, you know. There's lots of lists. There's the, the five training guidelines we took, not to kill, not to steal, not to lie or use harsh speech, not to harm others with our sexu- or ourselves with our sexual activity, not to take drugs or intoxicants that cloud the mind and cause heedlessness and cause us to do other harmful things. 
But those aren't meant as external rules and you just blindly follow them. They're, they're, they're reference points. But really when we see what's skillful, what's unskillful, it's by tuning into our own experience. As we do something, after we've done it, how we do it, how it affects others, and seeing what actually leads to the happiness and freedom from suffering of others, the happiness and less suffering for myself. And so it becomes not borrowed knowledge and not just having to obey some rules, but we know for ourselves. We experience the goodness of of non-harming. And when the mind that's not clouded by confusion experiences that, this guy said, goodness, it prefers it. Even though the habit of going after the pleasant and pulling away from the unpleasant is so strong, when, with a conscious awareness, with a wise mind, we actually experience the wholesomeness of, I want to say goodness, of non-harming. It's, it's such a sense of higher happiness that we, you could say, even we, sense of self, prefer it. It just feels lovely. And, oh, I'll tell you a little story, a friend of mine, um, I think I told this at the last retreat, but it was just an example of how you prefer it. This is Spirit Rock, which has some of you have been there, but they have a big, uh, a big store, much bigger than that, a giant store. Uh, they sell all kinds of stuff. And I was teaching there in February, and I wanted to go down and, and get a little statue, white Tara statue that I'd seen the year before. And Because um, you go and buy it, it's just self-service like here. So I went in, and I was looking all around, I couldn't see it. And I happened to run into a very dear friend of mine who from time, just happened to be coming through that day, who from time to time has worked with the, the person who runs the store. And she said, oh, I know where the statues are kept in these closets outside, and I know where the secret little magnet is kept that opens the closet doors, because you couldn't open it. I never. So she did that, and the two of us are rooting, you know, happily rooting through these closets. <laughs> and we finally found the one with, like, you know, tons of statues. So we're going through all the statues, finding the little one I want at the back. We get it out. And then she, she's putting back another little statue. It was a Manjushri statue with this little sword. She barely touched the thing, barely touched it, and the sword snapped. And she's going, oh, no, you know, oh. And then I said, oh. And then I put, I was holding one, I put it back, and the same thing happened. I mean, we're both like, oh. (laughs) And she sent me an email later, because without saying anything, we we both were looking at each other, and it just flashed through for, she said, for a nanosecond, both our minds, just put it back, no one ever Everything like, I don't want to buy this Manjushri. We're both thinking, I don't want to buy this Manjushri statue. So that went through our minds, but we're both always, but we saw it immediately. And there was no question, right? We could have, no one would have ever known. But we, no, we can't. So we took it out, locked it up. Then we went over to the Marianne, who runs this to her office, like two little bad girls to confess. <laughs> she wasn't there, so we're writing out a whole sheet, you know. And then she came in, and she goes, what are you two doing here? We really felt like, you know, little bad girls. But, so here, you know, we're confessing. We have to buy these. And she goes, oh, that happens all the time. We just glue it back together and sell it for half price. <laughs> well, that was great. But the sense of, um, you know, it's a funny story now, but she reminded me I wouldn't have even thought about it. But that sense of uh, so appreciating the quality of awareness that would just see that, that little moment, ah, no one will know. And that that's so clear. It's not even a conscious choice. It just feels so off. And the appreciation for honesty, for just doing, is just right there. You know, the wisdom is right there. The more we pay attention to all the ways our mind is working, the more it moves in that direction. It's not like we're such hot people or something. It's just, it's nothing personal. But wisdom prefers non-harming. It just feels better. If you just want to stay on a level of me personality, it feels better. You know, Sometimes it works out nice like that, too. It doesn't always. But it doesn't matter, because that's not the point. I'm just deciding where to go with this. (laughs) 
I said before, and that was a little example, of how with the steadiness of awareness, the, the unwholesome quality, the torments of mind, the habits of, of greed, of ill will, of uh, cruelty, naturally transform in our motivation. And this is really true. It's really true. I just want to talk a little bit about it. Maybe I'll talk about it in terms of compassion. Because for many, I know for many of us, for many people, uh, one aspect of cultivating mindfulness practice is, you know, to wake up, to be free. And for uh, another aspect, not for everybody, but for many people, is really wanting to act and move in the world uh, through compassion through a motivation of compassion rather than it's all about me, 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 right? And this also gets to where um, the seed, what's really the truest essence of an action isn't in how it looks or its result, but in the, the movement in the mind, in the heart that gives rise to it. This is also very true with compassion, so one way Thich Nhat Hanh likes to give very simple examples where the natural effect of understanding a situation will bring the mind into compassion when we were perhaps annoyed. So he gives an example of a brother and sister or two friends and say this, the sister's younger and being really fretful and whiny and bratty and the brother's getting really annoyed and really upset and you know it's just kind of going down a bad road. And the mother explains to the brother, who's a little older and can understand, that the little girl is sick and hurting and in a lot of pain and she can't really help herself. And she explains it in a way that the brother can understand. And when he understands that, the sense of you know blame and aversion, even in a child, can go away. You know, And there's just a sense of not, doesn't have to be like the bodhisattva of the ages, but this sense of, oh, you're hurting, I'm really sorry. I'm sure you've all experienced that, right? Right? <laughs> yeah. Even to yourself. Even to yourself, you know? Just the sense of moving from blame, moving from ill will, moving from, oh, how could I do that? I was so bad to say. That sense of self-forgiveness. I couldn't have done any differently at that time. And a sense of compassion comes in. A sense of understanding. I'm giving very simple examples, but that's really how it works. Compassion is described or defined as, in the Theravada, as the quivering of the heart, you could say the quivering of the mind, in connection with, in response to pain, in response to suffering. Another way of describing it, in terms of our metta practice, is when you feel a sense of metta, not such huge blow, but just that open connectedness with a person, or that open acceptance, oh, just as you are, may you be happy. That open presence, connectedness. When that quality of friendliness, connectedness, connects with the suffering aspect of yourself or another, but particularly the suffering aspect, the quality of heart-mind that is elicited in this open, wise space of heart-mind and is compassion. It just feels a little bit different. It just has a little different shading, you know, it's a, it's a tenderness, really, of heart that is willing and able to stay gently present with the pain, with the sadness. It may or may not be able to fix it. If there's the movement to alleviate the suffering, that's great if it's possible, coming from compassion, coming from a being with the suffering, not from a hating the suffering. That is not compassion. Compassion is the ability to be really present with it. If there's something to do, great, we do it. If there's not, compassion has this open, tender quality of wisdom and non-judging mind that can still be with the person or be with the suffering. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, who, as you know, is like the... the um, what is it called? He's the... Oh, my mind. Anyway, he's always reborn as the manifestation, the embodiment of compassion, right? And he, and I was at that teaching in California that time, 
where he was talking about how does compassion develop? He says, develops from deep insight into what the experience of suffering actually is. And how does that insight develop, you may ask? By being present with our own experience when there's suffering, when there's physical pain, when there's emotional pain, of any sort, bringing this same interested awareness, just take care of your awareness, allowing the awareness, the mindfulness, to just gently touch, if it's the physical pain or it's aversion in the mind, or it's a whole self-judging story, or it's a memory that in this moment brings up a sense of shame, whatever it is or it's rage and despair at what's going on in the world. Whatever it is, it's an experience arising in your mind and body right now. The thought may be the past or the future. The thought may be somewhere on the other side of the world, but it's a thought arising right now. It's a sensation, it's a feeling arising right now in your mind-body experience, and awareness can touch it. Awareness can meet it. And that quality that we just bring of simplicity, kindness of awareness, that is in that moment shifting the habit of mind from resistance and aversion towards the suffering to openness. That's what allows compassion. It's not like we have to think how to cultivate. It's just that moment, even if it's just a moment where you can touch that burning pain and just let it be as it is. Just for a moment, and then it bounces off. That was a moment of openness in the mind of non-aversion. Non-aversion opens into metta and compassion. So it's not that we have to jump from being lost in reactivity to being the Dalai Lama, but this is how moment-to-moment awareness is actually cultivating compassion. Awareness of aversion is not aversion. Do you know what I mean? The aversion is aversive. The awareness of aversion is not aversive. Awareness of suffering, when it's not colored by aversion, is actually how we open to compassion. And as the Dalai Lama then goes on to say, as our compassion, our ability to just be with ourselves, with clear awareness and suffering, even little sufferings, as that strengthens, then it begins to um, automatically, just moment on moment, it starts to turn into a sense of... um, of empathy and connectedness with other beings, and then, too, with all beings. And I'm sure you you must have seen how this works. If you've ever been uh, really sick, or had, like I had uh, years ago, I developed an autoimmune disease. And it's one of these things that everybody and their brother has something you should do for it, and try this. And and all well-intentioned, well-intentioned, maybe not wisely, but (laughs) well-intentioned. But can can you... Feel the difference when there's somebody who comes and they say, do this, do this, do this, and you can feel underneath it. It's, the, it's trying to help, but the motivation is actually fear or aversion or really discomfort with being with you while you're uncomfortable. If we can't be with ourselves when we're uncomfortable, it's really hard to be with someone else when they're uncomfortable. And even if we're trying to do the compassionate action the internal seed of the action is not compassion, it's discomfort or fear or aversion. And so we get interested to see that. And have you ever been then with someone who can come and be with you? And maybe they've got nothing to offer to fix it, but they're just there with you in the difficulty. And you can feel, to me, they can feel the real sense of compassion the sense of being present without needing to blind oneself or look away. Then if something occurs to do, you do it. Sure, there's all that energy to do. If there's not, it can just be there, really open and together. It's a beautiful thing. Now, there's a lot of nurses here. I'm sure you know more than I what exactly what I'm talking about because you're manifesting that all the time. And if you've ever been in the hospital and had a nurse who wasn't manifesting that, <laughs> but it's rough. I'm going to tell you, it's rough. So I just, the nurses and doctors, I bow. That's what I really bow. Um, Joko Beck, who is a Zen she has a wonderful way of saying it. Can we find in ourselves a willingness to rest in the confusion 
and the unpleasantness when we're going through something. Even a little confusion and unpleasantness. This is really where the awareness brings wisdom and the wisdom naturally transforms our fear of suffering, our dislike of suffering into compassion, into connectedness with ourselves and with all beings. And it, it takes it takes trust, it takes practice, it takes a real courage sometimes um, to, to even be willing to look and see and to begin to trust that you know, we can act at for trying to do so much good in the world. And there's, I mean, there's so much suffering, I don't have to tell you. And uh, being really quite active in all the different realms. And the results can be doing a lot of good. They can be. But if the motivation is coming from um, a lot, from anger, which, of course, is going to happen. We're not perfect beings because stuff is so difficult. It starts to eat us up. So this is where we want to pay attention. So I can tell this story because this is the perfect place to tell it because it happened here. The first retreat I taught here, and it might have, it was one of the first retreats here, if not the first. Anyway, there's a photo on the wall in the, in the dining room of all the people who are at that retreat. I was teaching it with Joseph Goldstein. When this place had first opened, and the retreat was billed for burned-out environmentalists. So most of them had no sense of uh, meditation or dharma practice at all. And it was before, even before uh, stress reduction, MBSR got so big. So really, Grove pulled him in from his environmental activism, you know. And yes, it was a tough bunch. <laughs> a tough bunch. Really smart lawyers and activists and burned out for sure. And high power. And willing, you know, open, but sort of like a prove it attitude, but, but interested. I was a little, um, what would you say? <laughs> I was a little like, okay, <laughs> let's see. Anyway, so we taught, it was about 10-day retreat, and we did Metta every afternoon like this. And when we first introduced it, we were talking about it, and one person, one man, I don't remember his name, but he was, like, people but generally were saying, are you kidding? Metta? Soft? Accepting? Open to people. Do you know what it's like in a courtroom against these, you know, big corporations, and they do they hate you, and they're they're just so attacking you, and they're doing everything they can to get you, and you have to have your anger, you have to have your energy to go in and fight back, and that's what you need. And don't tell me meta, and it's too mushy. We're like, okay, but you're here, just just do it, you know. In the act. So I mean, they did it to credit. This one particular guy was very. He's involved in some very difficult, angry lawsuit, you know, right in the middle of it. And at the end, I'm really, I'm not exaggerating, at the end of the retreat, just talking, and he was, he was actually crying a little bit. And he said, I had no idea of how that anger, you know, wasn't just coming out against the other lawyers, you know, the other lawyers, it's eating me up. It's coming out in my family. It's coming out everywhere I go. You know, it's not just at the lawyer. And he's like, oh. so I don't know really. I never saw him again. I don't know what effect it had. But just stopping to look, to turn around and look, it's a huge thing we're doing. We're practicing it here, and it may feel like, we're, well, we are really privileged to be able to be here. But we can meet that with gratitude rather than guilt. Because it's not so esoteric. It's not that we're just sitting here so that we can look inside our own hearts and minds and feel better about ourselves and really get into emptiness and compassion and the subtlety. Yeah, that's fantastic. I love all that stuff. But how does it affect our speech, our actions in the world? This awareness, this mindfulness, this understanding how Greed and confusion and hatred bring suffering to ourselves when they guide our actions and we don't know it. And we don't know it and we try to blind ourselves to it. It runs our actions. Just to have this tool of mindfulness and wisdom, the willingness to apply it over and over, the willingness to see how when these things are active and we stronger than awareness, the suffering they cause us. To see how the wisdom comes in, and we naturally 
the mind, the habit moves toward the actions of compassion, actions of friendliness, actions of non-harming, connectedness with other beings. How we are, how we manifest in the world affects everybody we come in contact with. There's no way we can say this is just an isolated, separate, esoteric little practice. We're just learning these tools to go out and do whatever you do, whether you do some kind of environmental activism, whether you stay home and take care of your family, whether you're working in an office, whether you're being a nurse, it doesn't matter. Whatever we're doing, we come in contact with people. And how we act and the, the motivations of our heart and mind are contagious. You know, it, it communicates. Just like when you're around someone really angry, it's a lot easier to get angry. When you're around someone that's angry and you can tune into the anger building in yourself and say, oh, maybe I don't need to do that right now. That is huge. I, I really feel like it's a huge gift to the world. And how we show up, there is no one right way, right? How we manifest. So I just want to, just, I'll just end with a story from a, a movie a little documentary, an hour movie that was made when Sony Rinpoche, who is a, a pretty well-known Tibetan teacher in this country now, was going back to Tibet with some uh, Western women. And they're going to visit some nuns up in an area called Nangchen. And so one of the women was, was kind of filming and put together this documentary. So I'll just say this quickly. So these nuns in Tibet, they had been there for many, many, many years, and during the Cultural Revolution, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, they were forced, well, the the Chinese came in and, of course, forced them to leave their nunneries. Some were killed, some were put into prison camps, some, uh, and then they had choice, the ones that weren't that, some, all of them had to disrobe. Some of them um, went way, 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 way up into the mountains, into the caves, and just hid and tried to, to stay nuns secretly and do their practice. And those ones, some of them starved to death. They had, you know, really, really, we can't even imagine, difficult times. Other ones went back to their families, and some of them just gave up and, and went back to normal life. A lot of them, they looked like they were having normal lives, but they said they were secret nuns. They were wearing their normal clothes. They had to seem to take part with their family. But in their heart, they never abandoned being nuns. And when Sonny Rinpoche and these women went back just a few years ago, uh, things had eased a bit. And so the nuns that were still alive were coming back together. The ones who had almost starved but lived had come back down. The ones that had been with their families had come back. They'd taken robes again, and they were rebuilding their nunnery, which is like on a, high up on a mountain. They're dragging by hand timbers and giant stones and rebuilding this nunnery. So you see, they all had this deep commitment to their, to their awareness, to their awakening, to goodness. How they carried it through this difficult time was unique to each of them. Then when it was time, they came back together and they're each doing different things. And at the very end, and this is where I want to end it, they, took, they let the, these women, um, these Western women, go up and meet her. They said, this is our most oldest senior nun. She's the most realized of all of us. And they, they took her up, and she was in this tiny, tiny little shack way, way up high. She looked like 150. I don't know how old she really was. She'd certainly been through a lot. She was lying in kind of like a wooden bed. She couldn't get up anymore. And she just lay there all the time. Her eyes were so bright. One of these, you know, old, old awakened beings with incredibly bright eyes. And she was just spinning a prayer wheel. And she said, all I do all day is just send out prayers of loving kindness for all beings. I just lie here for 24 hours, except when she's sleeping, just saying, may all beings be happy and free from suffering. May all beings be happy and free from suffering. I thought, wow, you know, what a life, what a mind, what a cultivation. You could say, well, nobody knows. It's just some little lady up there and nobody else knows it, you know. But like, like I said about that, Nam in Burma who chants Metta, who actually I know who he meant, but I hate to tell you she died. But this other nun's still up there chanting. So there's as many ways as there are people 
to manifest wisdom and compassion. So take care of your awareness. It's really like the most precious gift we have. And thank you all for being here and for your commitment and for your caring for yourselves in the world. Thank you for listening to Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.